0: Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail, Taiwan. It's a country with a complicated past and a complicated present and in all likelihood it'll have a complicated future.
1: Are you willing to get
0: involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. First settled by indigenous Taiwanese tens of thousands of years ago, this tiny island nation off the coast of China has experienced waves of colonization. It's been used as a bargaining chip and peace settlements, and eventually it became the refuge of a government in exile. And throughout all of this, it's persevered. Taiwan is now one of the wealthiest and most developed countries on earth and its small size and population belie its remarkable global influence.
1: It's home to the world's most critical chip maker, and semiconductors have been in short supply over the past year.
0: But China considers these islands a breakaway province. It maintains the position that... The People's Republic of China is trying to claim Taiwan as part of its territory, and the Taiwanese people, the vast majority of Taiwanese people... Do not accept that they are part of ta- of China. Earlier this month, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, visited Taiwan. China's outraged at the visit by Nancy Pelosi, the most senior American politician, to go to Taiwan in 25 years. And things escalated. China has launched several ballistic missiles into water surrounding Taiwan after Beijing announced the start of live-fire military drills. The military has carried out a live-fire drill lasting an hour. The drill simulated how Taiwan would defend itself against a Chinese attack. Today on the podcast, University of Canterbury political science professor Alex Tan. On the history of Taiwan and its relations with China, why this tiny country is so important and whether these current tensions could escalate to a full-blown invasion.
1: There's an indigenous people there, and Mm. and they are related to uh, Austronesian people. And in fact, uh, more recent anthropological studies show that Taiwan seems to be that launching pad for these voyages to the South Pacific and to Southeast Asia and and what have you. But over time, uh, this particular island, which is just off the coast of the Fujian province of of China, has become really a a marina, so to speak, uh, uh, for fishermen from Fujian province. And it has been over time settled by uh, Chinese settlers from Fujian province. So the majority of the people in Taiwan speak a dialect that is related to the Fujian dialect. What happened there is there are a lot of European interactions. In fact, uh, Spain, uh, the Dutch, the English, uh, very, very early on had some kind of interaction with the peoples of Taiwan. Mm. It became a territory controlled during, uh, by the Chinese imperial uh, dynasty, so to speak, uh, under the Ming dynasty and then later on the Qing dynasty. But in 1895, in the Treaty of Shimonoseki, the Qing dynasty ceded Taiwan to Japan mm. as a war reparation for the 1894 loss of the Qing dynasty against the, against the Japanese forces in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894. Mm. After that, uh, you have 1945, so Japan colonized the island from 1895 to 1945. And after the Second World War, when Japan lost, the island was returned back to the Republic of China. In the background of that, China's civil war was ongoing.
0: This conflict was between Chinese communists, who we now know as the Chinese Communist Party, and Chinese nationalists led by Chiang Kai-shek. The communists won, and Chiang Kai-shek's defeated army retreated eventually to the island of Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists set up a government in exile known as the Republic of China, which they claimed represented
1: real China. Now you have this contestation of uh, from 49 onwards about who who is the... This true representative of the Chinese nation, so to speak. If we trace it all the way back to 1949, it's both sides, right? The Republic of China and the People's Republic of China claiming that they are the sole representative of the Chinese nation. Interestingly, from 1949 to 1971 until October 1971, this Republic of China government in the island of Taiwan represented the whole Chinese nation in the United Nations. During this time, Taiwan was ruled by an authoritarian
0: government under martial law. More than 100,000 people were imprisoned or executed for being pro-communist. But by the early 1970s, other countries began to recognise the communist-ruled People's Republic of China as being real China, partly due to its economic power and partly due to its cultural history, and partly because the Taiwanese regime had its own issues, the
1: KMT government, the nationalist government, they were an authoritarian party. They were anti-communist, yes, but they were authoritarian as well. So, so they want to make sure that you know uh, society is uh, is not infiltrated by communist officials. But at the same time, they also were very much against the islanders who've been in Taiwan prior to 1949. Mm-hmm colonised by the Japanese and, and what have you, they're also very much against the islanders who are clamouring for a Taiwan independence. The, the Taiwan that we have been talking
0: about is very different from the Taiwan that we, that we see today. And there is a key year in all of this, it strikes me, which is, is 1987. Um, and I wonder whether you can describe what happens in 1987 and, and how that sets Taiwan
1: along a, a, a different path, I suppose. Yes. You know, everybody knows the economic miracle of Taiwan. By 1962, Taiwan's industrial era set forth and industrial production started to exceed agricultural
0: production. The manufacturing sector began to take off as many companies sent their manufacturing operations into Taiwan to take advantage of cheaper labor. This attracted a lot of foreign investment into the nation.
1: Prior to 1987, there's an important date in 1986 wherein the then KMT government uh, uh, decided that they will not crack down on the opposition party when the opposition party officially established itself as a political party. Mm. So prior to 1986, organized opposition like a political party uh, against the KMT, it's illegal. But there were, of course, uh, opposition figures, right, uh, that were pro Taiwanese independence and what have you, and democratic forces in Taiwan as well. So in 86, uh, the Democratic Progressive Party, which is the current ruling party, was established. Around 1988, uh, Chiang Ching Kuo, the president uh, then, who is the son of Chiang Kai shek, passed away. And then you see uh, the first islander president became elected. And that is the start of, you know, what we can say the slow path towards political liberalisation first and in, in the mid-1990s, full-blown democratisation. If you compare Taiwan in 2022, which is this
0: very wealthy, very advanced, very economically important country to 1949, wherein it was the refuge, really, for a defeated nationalist uh, movement of, of, of Chinese nationalists. How different are those two countries? Is that, is that idea that Taiwan is the real China still a big part of Taiwanese politics and society, or has it really transformed in that
1: you know intervening 70 years or so? It has really transformed into intervening 70 years. I think Uh, And it accelerated uh, at about the time you mentioned a while ago, 86, 86, 87, 88. Mm -hmm. It definitely accelerated uh, during that time and and certainly during the 21st century since 2000, even more so. Well, partly it's because, uh, you know, the separation of these two places is over 100 years, you know, Mm -hmm. from 1895 when the imperial Qing court decided to cede Taiwan to Japan. Since then, actually, Taiwan has never been part of this full, you know, Chinese state, so to speak, if you, you know. And over time, what, what happened is also the growing identification of the people who live in the island mm. on this place called Taiwan.
0: Are you saying it's sort of gestated and birthed into a de facto independent country, even if de jure, it's not? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. There's one last very important thing Taiwan did in this period of time regarding its economy. In the late 80s, it started to centre technology as a keystone of its economy, anticipating a boom in that industry over the coming decades. And when the boom arrived, Taiwan was very well positioned to take advantage. It's now a key player in many areas of tech, particularly the crucial industry of manufacturing semiconductors. Semiconductors are little chips which are used in pretty much everything, from cars to fridges to supercomputers. They are absolutely crucial in the modern world for every country. And it's estimated that Taiwan produces more than half the world's semiconductors.
1: The interesting thing is in the uh, late 1990s, I wrote a, a book, uh, an edited book, uh, and we're in one of the chapters uh, that I wrote. I argued that in order for Taiwan to increase its own national security. There are two things that are very, very important. That was in the 1996, when Taiwan just started to become a full democracy. Mm. I said, number one, Taiwan has really, really needs to consolidate its democracy so that it will be a, an important member of the democratic family of nations. Number two, I argued that they need to have an industry that will be at the heart of this supply chain And their thinking is technology intensive and what they call knowledge-based industrialization. And the so-called knowledge-based industrialization led the government of the day in the 70s and 80s to invite senior executive from Texas Instrument, who is uh, uh, from Taiwan, to come back to Taiwan. And when he returned to Taiwan, uh, uh, they started this Taiwan semiconductor company, TSMC as we know it today and also establish the Sinchu Science-Based Industrial Park, essentially Taiwan's Silicon Valley. So identifying what the next breakthrough is in order for Taiwan to anticipate its industrial policy. You seem to be suggesting that
0: the best strategic positioning for Taiwan would be to make itself a crucial part of a supply chain. And I suppose the reason that that is of utmost diplomatic importance is that while Taiwan might by that stage have given up on being the real China, and embracing um, the idea of independence or becoming becoming its own country. The People's Republic of China never gave up on the idea that Taiwan was part of China, correct? True. And that's where we are today. How are relations between Taiwan and the People's Republic of China? Where are things at? How would you describe
1: it? Um, frozen? Uh cold, do not really see eye to eye with this particular government. Yeah, it's very, very, very difficult uh, relationship. Then accelerated by the fact that in 2017, when Trump uh, came in as president of the United States uh, and being very confrontational with China as well. We'll take you straight to the White House, the president of the United States announcing new trade tariffs against China. We've lost 60,000 factories, six million jobs at least. In particular with China, we're going to be doing a Section 301 trade action. It could be about $60 billion. But that's really just a fraction of what we're talking about. It it made matters worse. uh, Mm -hmm. And then we start seeing China sending all these fighter planes or military planes, you know. Speaking
0: after a four-day period in which nearly 150 Chinese warplanes flew into Taiwan's air defense zone. Beijing claims the democratically governed island as part of its territory and has blamed rising tension on the presence of U.S. and allied warships in the region.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a bit tense uh, because of uh, China's fear that with a much more supportive America, so to speak, it might accelerate Taiwan's formal declaration of independence.
0: Does Taiwan want to do a formal in- declaration of independence? Is that what the Taiwanese government and indeed the Taiwanese people do? Is, is, is this an important issue
1: in Taiwan? Uh, it matters in the sense that it is this current situation is a limbo status. It's neither here nor there, kind of like that. Taiwan feels that the countries that they're visiting, none of them formally recognizes them, uh, and it creates a lot of uh, difficulties. To be honest, you know, I mean, Taiwan is not a member of the United Nations and in many of its agencies, Taiwan is not a formal member. It's not a member of the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund. So you can see how challenging that would be for just on the financial sector itself, dealing on international trade, international financial transactions. You know, all of these are, are huge challenges. You've mentioned the U.S.
0: a couple of times. Let's talk about what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. The U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has landed in Taiwan, drawing condemnation
1: from China. She's on a tour of Asia. The Taiwan visit wasn't an official stop on the tour, but it does signal the U.S.'s commitment to the island nation. This was a significant uh, move, wasn't it? Can you explain why? In my view, it's more symbolic, right? Uh, The reason why China was so upset is that, number one, she is a very high-ranking politician. So there's the symbolism of the fact that you have a very, very senior official going over there. The other thing is that I think whether it's wittingly or unwittingly, from the PRC side anyway, uh, she has just waded in into Taiwanese domestic politics as well. For Pelosi going to Taiwan, is that a signal that she is giving that that the United States supports a particular political party in Taiwan? So I, I guess from the China perspective, uh, they were concerned about that. Is it egging on a particular group in Taiwan that will, quote unquote, change the status quo, so to speak?
0: And this came not long after Joe Biden explicitly said that in the event of a Taiwan-China conflict... Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes.
1: And that was a... Or am I overstating it? Was that a big deal when he said that? No, you're not overstating it. You're not overstating it. It was really interesting. Immediately after Joe Biden said it, the State Department officials were backtracking on it.
0: A White House official later tried to walk those comments back, insisting there isn't a change in policy toward Taiwan, a policy that's known as strategic ambiguity.
1: But you're right. I mean, the the fact is that many different channels have said different ways. The United States always have that policy of what they call strategic ambiguity, just to keep everyone on its toes. But, you know, some people say that it's pretty much a signal of strategic clarity already. Biden saying it, what's happening, the United States with regards to, you know, looking at China as an adversary rather than a competitor since 2017. Yeah, I think uh, there's no doubt that uh, Taiwan becomes a very important cog on the wheel here in American geostrategic play with regards to Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia.
0: The PRC's response to Nancy Pelosi's visit was to conduct some military exercises off the coast of Taiwan. China is saying it will extend its military drills around Taiwan for an unspecified amount of time. This is Taiwan's defense force conducts live fire drills of its own today.
1: Can you explain the, the
0: reasoning behind this and why that's a significant move?
1: Yeah, uh, number one, uh, before they did that, uh, they also announced several sanctions on several products that Taiwan exports to China. And then what happened after Nancy Pelosi left, they began their their military exercises around Taiwan. And this is actually the first time that many of these exercise area have crossed, you know, in in, in the western part of Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait area, wherein there's 110 miles of waterways separating Taiwan and China. There's this imaginary halfway line that none of them crosses. Mm. But this time around, PRC's military definitely crossed that. Mm. They had a designated area for their military exercises there as well. And they fired ballistic missiles to test their accuracy that went over Taiwan's atmosphere and landed on the eastern side, on the the Pacific side of Taiwan. So they fired missiles over Taiwan. Exactly. So... It's a psychological game, you know, in a way, kind of like stoking fear among the people. Although in Taiwan, look, Taiwan is 70 some odd years of, you know, living with the dragon, so to speak. They always know those threats. So, you know, life goes on as usual. But these are, you know, uh, they're showing, they're telling the Taiwanese people that, look, you know, we have these capabilities now. If we need to, we just want to make sure that you don't run too far. (laughs) If we were having this conversation a couple of years ago,
0: it would be a very different context to how we're having this conversation now because Russia, using military exercises on the border, decides to invade Ukraine in a war of territorial conquest. There is fear that China may decide to invade Taiwan. Is Is that a realistic fear? I think
1: it always is. It's always as present, right? We can say that there's always a probability, but how high is that likelihood? That's the other question. Taiwan is a much smaller territory. It's an island. Any invasion of Taiwan would necessarily require naval forces. Mm. But at the same time, uh, China has uh, possessed enough missile forces that they can hurt Taiwan, irregardless, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they land or don't land, they can, they can definitely hurt Taiwan. It's always there in the back of everyone's mind. So how this whole geopolitical game plays out is interestingly very much affected by the domestic politics within each of these territories, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, the domestic politics of the United States, the domestic politics of China, the audiences that they're speaking to, right? Mm. And it's very interesting because within Taiwan, you know, I mean, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, a professor, Emerson Niu at uh, Duke University, uh, he and several colleagues of mine at the Election Study Center at National Changchun University in Taipei, they've done a survey uh, of Taiwanese, uh, what they call the Taiwan National Security Survey, wherein they asked Taiwanese, Uh, What their position would be depending on various scenarios. Right. Mm. And uh, I think we can safely say that most Taiwanese would rather be on their own and, you know, uh, be independent if there is no threat coming from China. Right. Uh, It's a big if though. That's right. But if there's a threat coming in from China, then let's just you know, hold on the status quo for now and not – you know. Um, <laughs> so, so it, but, it's, but like I said, the status quo at the moment for Taiwan is a limbo status, mm. right? It's, a, it's really neither here nor
0: there. It strikes me that there are three options here. A, the status quo, perseveres, which isn't really an option as you've outlined. You know, it, it, it has to be sorted out at some stage, whether it's sooner or later. Option two, uh, Taiwan becomes fully independent. Or
1: option three, it escalates into conflicts. That is right. That is exactly right. You you pointed out those three options incredibly clearly. That's what it is. What, can they work it out? There's a third party there that needs to come in, and that's the United States. Mm. Because American interest is very, very much in line on that, right? Whether Taiwan and China can work it out at the moment, in the next couple of years, quite difficult, right? Yeah. Going forward, maybe. But then you have to deal with the situation of how does the United States figure in all these game, And it's not just, you know, uh, the formal diplomatic talk of uh, the Taiwanese will be able to deal with them. Do we respect what, what the Taiwanese people will decide? I think that is political speak. Mm. Uh, there are geostrategic interests uh, with regards to that. So unfortunately for Taiwan, it is quite difficult because they are a small country that is in a very asymmetric interaction with a very, very large economy and a large military, right, that is intent on taking Taiwan. So will China give up the use of force uh, with regards to taking over Taiwan? I don't think so, Uh, partly because in in a way, Chinese perception is that Taiwan is like this uh, American aircraft carrier parked on their underbelly to check on them. So, unfortunately, Taiwan is subsumed in this greater geostrategic and geopolitical competition of great powers. That's it for
0: today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Professor Alex Tan. Matewa.